0: Okay, thanks very much. Welcome uh, to Controversies in Stone Management. I'm delighted to uh, work with a good longtime friend uh, and really well recognized international authority in stones, uh, Peggy Pearl from uh, Texas Southwestern. Uh, I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. Just to uh, give a brief overview, uh, our goal for the next uh, hour and 15 minutes or so is to give an interactive uh, review of what we think are both controversial and pertinent uh, management issues in in stone disease, which uh, we all know is a big part of uh, practicing urology. We will be monitoring uh, the chat line and uh, Peggy and I will alternate uh, presenting, uh, but we will certainly be interested in taking your comments and questions and uh, we'll be doing the same uh, as we work together. So uh, without further ado, uh, why don't we get started? All right, so the learning objectives for today is upon completion of the course. Our uh, participants uh, will be able to apply standard therapies to complex problems, counsel patients and colleagues regarding controversial topics in stone management, and manage all aspects of a complex surgical stone case. Okay, well, we'll start uh, here with a 65-year-old woman with right flank pain, and uh, I start with a KUB and and the reason I have this up is because we we don't get too many of these anymore and and I think today you know stone disease has changed dramatically in terms of diagnostic capability and and I think if if there's something we want to get across to you today is utilizing your diagnostic uh tools will be very important in making best decisions even in uh more standard stone cases just to uh verify or help here this is There are no tricks in this case, and there's an apparent calcification uh, in the right kidney area. Uh, As you all know, 85% of stones are seen on KUV, but uh, subsequently 15% are not seen. So uh, we are not sure this is a stone, so I certainly wouldn't act based on just a a plain radiograph unless you have a strong history of stone disease prior, or this is recently post-treatment, or there's a corroborating CT. Certainly, we have had an ongoing imaging controversy in Stone disease. Uh, CT remains sort of the best standard imaging study, uh, but CT uh, has typically been associated with higher radiation, certainly higher cost, uh, and uh, I think the availability issue is is less a problem today. Uh, Many of you in the audience would have never even ordered an IVP, uh, so this is a rare study. And while ultrasound has been useful, Certainly in the follow-up of stone patients, as Peggy's written in, in, in her uh, medical management and uh, follow-up stone papers, you know, certainly up front, ultrasound has had problems estimating precise stone size and even getting giving more caliceal anatomy. Uh, there isn't even a measurement standard, if you will. Most people, and even Peggy and I today, are going to talk about linear diameter, but really stones are three-dimensional, so we really should be able to give a, a volume. Uh, standard, and and I would make the case we should use volume, particularly when we use technologies like shockwave lithotripsy. Um, There is now some low-dose protocols, uh, and we have something that uh, we use uh, that I think is becoming more and more available nationally, so sort of a low-dose CT uh, at a different uh, price point. So let me go and show this. So we uh, developed uh, just at our university, it's not necessarily uh, proprietary and I don't have uh, any financial concerns with this, but we're able to now create a CT that will give and measure uh, Hounsfield unit density as well as volume uh, as part uh, of the study. And, And I think the value of a of a follow up CT rather than ultrasound is now you can measure for the metabolic growth of stone over time, uh, and and as you all know, uh, particularly lower pole stones tend to grow, and and the growth is pretty difficult to measure just on plain film. Uh, it becomes just a, a visual rubric, and and now I think there are volumetric approaches that we can begin to use. Uh, this is. Uh, from uh, the AUA last year, we had an update this year, unfortunately didn't get couldn't get presented in, in person, but we do now have a ultra low dose limited renal CT. So effectively you get coronal images that look like uh, an IVP, for those of you who missed the old IVP, you get some caliceal anatomy, uh, and then you get the axial view, and you can also get linear um, diameter, volume, and house field unit density to a fairly reasonable uh, clarity or fidelity. And the biggest thing we did, at least for the moment, is we were able to get the fee to around, you know, what it is for ultrasound at our institution. Now, certainly these numbers will vary, but I think many of you uh, will probably use as a standard renal ultrasound, which at our place is about $1,000. Uh, The KUB, which is the least expensive uh, approach, uh, is still that, and the CT, axial axial imaging at our place in a standard way is close to $3,000 when it's all said and done. Here it's listed as $2,300. But the other nice piece here is that the limited renal CT only gives about the radiation dose of of a two-shot KUB. So it's ultra-low dose, and the fee is better. So I think we can begin to use better imaging tools to follow our patients. And this is a representative image from this patient. So now we can get back to the case. And uh, this is incidental, but here is uh, the data. The Hounsfield density is 950, which is kind of on the low side. Skin to stone distance is eight, uh, which is also on the low side. So, you know, I would say all options are in play in uh, terms of management. Um, Peggy, what would you do for for this person, female?
1: Hi, thanks, Steve. Um, so for this patient, you know, I I think you know the first question is just is the patient having any symptoms? I mean, if this is a completely incidental finding, then I think it's you know this is one of those you know shared decision making. Um, it's hard to make an asymptomatic patient better. So, I think uh, I would make the patient aware that there's a stone and that stone could move or pass at any time. And if it does, you know, there could be, you know, debilitating pain associated with it. So they have to be aware of that risk. And from an occupational standpoint, that might be important. I mean, if this was a pilot, then, you know, some intervention would be necessary. Um, if not, uh, somebody who's not traveling a lot, um, you know, not a truck driver, not somebody that, that, some kind of debilitating pain in the middle of uh, you know traveling would be problematic. then I think you could manage the patient conservatively, and I would probably evaluate them metabolically um, to at least uh, address any, any uh, metabolic issues that would be responsible for stone formation. Yeah. Um, if, if surgical intervention is going to be entertained, then you know, as you said, I think you have a lot of options in play. Um, Shockwave Lothotrypsis in play, because those are favorable Hounsfield units, or reasonably favorable Hounsfield units, and favorable skin to stone distance. Um, uh, what was the size of that stone again?
0: No, was about 0.9, something like 0.9, this. And she, so, she presented with pain, you know, most people don't come to me unless they have pain, you probably remember that.
1: Right, so, so with pain, you know, again, it's, you know, uh, you have to discuss whether it's the pain's truly due to the stone or not. Um but but you know admitting that it that that's a possibility, then um, you know, shockwave lithotripsy is an option from a stone standpoint, although I think we're all aware of the limitations of shockwave um in in, in terms of uh, lower pulse stones, but a stone less than a centimeter is reasonable. And ureteroscopy is certainly a reasonable option as well. Um, You could argue whether PCNL is a reasonable option in this case, but I think with mini-PCNL, you could argue that's on the table as well.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I I think this is a a person in their uh, 50s, so, you know, certainly they're healthy enough, so the consideration to observation could have other risks, you know, potentially if the person would eventually develop. Heart disease uh, and beyond anticoagulation potentially long term so so I think there's a case with symptoms that you treat right uh, and and I guess which one would you do assuming the patient you know said Dr Pearl whatever you're the international authority please tell me what to do
1: yeah I would probably favor ureteroscopy in this case I mean it's a less than one centimeter stone I'll present some data later about success rates with that. I think the shockwave, lithotripsy stone free rates are low regardless. So my inclination would be ureteroscopy.
0: Right, and and uh, you would probably basket the fragments, right? So you I had, would. yeah, I all would. right. So, so uh, we would also do ureteroscopy. I'll see if I can get this back on here. Uh, first, uh, I'll say, this is from one of our textbooks. and. And so if the patient has a less than two centimeter renal stone, the first question is, are they coagulopathic, meaning we can't reverse their anticoagulation? If so, then we're forced into ureteroscopy because shockwaves out of the picture. Uh, we still use fluoroscopy on our shockwave machines. So if it's not visible, they would get ureteroscopy. If the skin to stone distance uh, is too large, they'd also get ureteroscopy, this patient is not. And if the Hounsfield density is uh, greater than 1000, they'd get ureteroscopy. So you can see at our place, uh, a lot of things are sending the arrow uh, over to uh, the left of the screen. Uh, but I think this person could uh, get either one, uh, certainly the way It's presented. So uh, what do we do? This is an old paper, but it's important. It's not the first paper that talks about ureteroscopy without a safety wire, but we use a technique, you know, that if if you've seen any of my talks you've heard uh, uh, already, uh, we use the ureteroscope as a safety wire. And basically this is the data that says the complication rate's very low. The actual technical complication rate's extremely low because we're really not passing a lot of instrumentation we put up the wire just to get the scope up. And in point of fact, if I were practicing alone, I might just put the scope up without a wire. Uh, but I am in a training program with great residents, so, so the wire becomes an initial part. Uh, we, in this series, never had ureteral injury or abulsion, uh, and, and it's relatively safe. I also believe uh, that it, it actually simplifies the procedure uh, this is a paper talking about the death of the safety wire, you know, Peggy and I both trained at Washington University under Ralph Clayman, and we were taught about, you know, if you, having a safety wire as being a, a, a real critical tenet of ureteroscopy, uh, but here there's evidence that it's actually harder to do the case, uh, harder to advance the scope uh, if you have the safety wire in, and I think we all have been in situations where that, in fact, is true. And there are actually a couple studies that compared uh, using the wire or not, and, and actually found improved stone free rate and, and uh, lower complication rate. Uh, although certainly, uh, again, these are, are limited trials. So, so I think it's an option to use the ureteroscope safety wire, particularly for a stone like this one, because you're working in the kidney. And once you're finished in the kidney, you know, you can then place a stent if if so needed, and either way you have full access to the collecting system. This is a little different if you basket your pieces out, and then a sheath has its uh, benefits, and Peggy can make her own case uh, on that.
1: Steve, let me ask you a question. Yeah, yeah. What do you do for a, a stone, for stone analysis?
0: Yeah. So if we don't have a stone analysis, we would typically take a piece. So we would take one or two uh, uh, stones and and frankly, we do it towards the end. And and, you know, actually, you know, we're pretty comfortable even without a wire, we can go back up. Uh, the other thing is there's actually several studies now that, that show with pretty high confidence that, you know, visually you can identify a stone. So I think stone analysis is not as critical as it used to be, uh, particularly uh, if there's no infection. So if the patient doesn't have infections and struvite is effectively eliminated, you know, a yellow-brown uh, stalactite-appearing stone is probably calcium oxalate, dihydrate, uh, potentially darker monohydrate, and so on. Uh, but we would typically get a piece of stone. It's a good point. Um, my guidelines for wireless ureteroscopy—they used to be pretty limiting. You know, it had to have uh, renal procedures only, always replace the wire, don't don't distract the stone, otherwise move the stone in the kidney, uh, no intrinsic ureteral disease, and so on. And and today, pretty much, you know, I think you can just do it. So we're pretty comfortable as our standard approach. Um, should you dust or should you basket? I still think it's it's negotiable. I haven't seen great data supporting one largely better than the other. Uh, this was from the edge group showing uh, the difference in stone free rate, and there was a difference in the univariate analysis but not in the multivariate analysis, and obviously the basketing procedure takes longer. Um, I think it's dealer's choice, and, and I've waited uh, for a while just to see better data or to identify whether I needed to change my practice. So one of the things we eventually did was sort of reassess this. And and what is uh, stone free? What role do residual fragments really play? Uh, What do you do with concurrent stones? What about quality of life? But what one patient asked me, a very reasonable person, not that everyone isn't reasonable, but a reasonable person asked me, you know, what are the chances, Dr. Nakata, that, that I'm gonna need to have this again? You know, this was the first, you know, procedure. What are the chances? And I, I said, I don't know. Pretty unlikely, but you know, on the other hand, you'll probably have another stone. So we decided to sort of look at our database or our data of all the ureteroscopies we've done, and um, this is uh, something different that I'll come back to. So let me come back to that one. Uh, but we looked at our data, and this was um, exclusive of the given stone. Uh, at least at first, but it's basically our stone free rates, which were very similar to um, what Humphreys showed. Our follow up median follow up was 4.2 years up to eight years. And this is in the journal Urology. So basically what it shows is this is your risk of needing another procedure. Uh And and it didn't matter whether it was a different stone or a concurrent stone, it's just what are the chances that you'd need another procedure based on the residual fragment size that that you have at the end of the procedure. So this is no stone, 1.2, 3 to 4 and greater than 4. And you can see that obviously if you have a large stone, there's a pretty good chance you'll need another procedure in up to eight years. So this was our first look at this. And this is the global risk, so I could answer the question. It was like 28% chance that in some point uh, in eight years they might have another stone procedure. So it's higher than I wanted to say, but it's it's what happened. And then. Eventually, we started to look at the data more carefully. What are the risk factors for repeat surgery? And these were the common ones that came from Andy Rule's paper on uh, risk of recurrent stone disease from the Mayo Clinic, uh, Olmsted County. So diabetes, UTIs, uh, GI conditions, nephrolithiasis, bilateral stones, female, less than 60. And basically, depending on the risk factors, we could begin to quantify really what your chances were for needing a repeat surgery in six or eight years. So this has become a counseling feature uh, for our patients um, before we go to ureteroscopy. Uh, If you were to consider shockwave, so back to the case, uh, I would really look at the volume on CT. And this is a paper that's older, but really shows that CT is a much better predictor of shockwave outcomes rather than straight up KUB. Uh, And again, uh, as we discussed, townsfield density and skin to stone distance uh, is useful. So I'm hoping everyone in the audience before they do shockwave certainly look at those parameters. In particular, I think skin to stone distance is important because if you have someone who is too large or or shaped incorrectly, if you will, for the lithotrypter, you're just going to do a procedure that is not successful. On the other hand, uh, very thin people can do well. Uh, particularly with smaller volume stone, and, and this was our first paper to show this. Uh, but let me go back a little here. Sorry, apologize to the audience. Um, and this is a paper that just came out uh, last month, uh, looking at the, the influence of lower pole angle on flexible ureteroscopy outcomes. So basically, again, it does show we do better if the infundibular pelvic angle is uh you know less uh, acute or more obtuse in terms of passage and this makes sense because we are not we're, we're we're dusting so you could make the case that it, it's sort of a, a version of higher end uh, shockwave lithotripsy. but I'd also make the case you know the stone free rates are acceptable enough and um, it's another piece or part of what we would use in our equation so if you have a more acute angle to the lower pole we might Uh, consider extracting some fragments here and there. Anyway, I'll push us back to the spot. And uh, finally, to wrap up this case, uh, I just would like the audience to be aware of John Honey's original paper on how to make the most of shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, Several key points, Uh, urologists who do a lot of them do better. Uh, They use more shocks and they use more fluoro time which means they care more that they're on the stone. And, you know, we probably do, you know, 20 or so shockwave procedures a year, but those 20 are pretty successful. I don't have the data for you today. And and that's because those patients are highly selected. Anyway, well, that's, that's enough on this case. Peggy, what are your thoughts?
1: So I, I, you know, I I think that's, your comments about ESWAL, I think, are 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 really well taken, and the centers that are doing a lot of it do it well. So, it does argue for that. Um, and it's still the only non-invasive procedure we have. So, uh, although I tend to not do any of it, um, I have to admit, um, there's, there's a role for it. There's still a role for it. Um, and there are times I do a ureteroscopy that I just say to myself, should have done shockwave lithotripsy so it's 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 good that it's an option out there um you know about the safety wire you know all points very well taken i think that the the given with that is is that you're dusting stones rather than basketing so if you're a basketer it's that's not a really a good option for you um i would say but there's no question that passing a scope without a guide wire in is a whole lot easier and there are times that you know when i'm dealing with a tight ureter that that I, I can't get the scope up I can't get an access sheath up I it, I might get an access sheath up without a safety wire in which case like you I'm using the access sheath as my safety wire if I'm working in the kidney I would not do that in the ureter um, but if I was in the kidney and I can get the access sheath into the kidney then I would work that way um, uh, but but sometimes you know even as a as a basketer um, if I if I can't get it can only get the scope up without a safety wire, then I dust. So I, I end up kind of in the same place.
0: Yeah, what do you think about the new lasers? I mean, we we changed our approach dramatically when you know we got better lasers. You know, variable pulse lasers, you know, have been out now for six or seven years. Uh, obviously, now you know there are uh, high power holmium lasers. Uh, there's the more recent thulium laser, uh, and, and they are very good in the dusting mode. Uh, regardless of of whether you have thulium or holmium, having used both, and, and I think that's a huge advantage. And and uh, again, I I think that changes the way I view it. The safety of the operation is very high, and the dust is very fine. I mean, what do you, what what concerns you about that, or how do you, because because you really, if you're basketing right, you can just break up the stones and pull the pieces out
1: right so you know i mean as a die-hard basketer uh, you know i've i've still been fairly i'd say dubious about dusting because i'm still concerned that what we're calling dust isn't dust it's we're still leaving behind fragments and the reason i became a basketer is because as diligently and meticulously as i would you know so-called dust patients would come back to the office with a pile of fragments in the lower pole, even when I had displaced the stone into the upper pole. So that was really what turned me in the first place. Um, I'm most optimistic about thulium, less so about holmium, because I think with thulium, there's the possibility to truly dust. And when I think of dust, I'm thinking of something that's really an immersion. So it's 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 fragments that are suspended in fluid. They don't settle out, in in you know with time they really remain suspended if they remain suspended in fluid or urine then they will truly pass out with the urine but i think anything short of that you're just leaving fragments that can settle in the lower pole or wherever in the kidney and not pass and i think olivier's done some really nice work looking at that and looking that the ability to generate you know truly dust and i think you know he he gives a talk about you know sort of what is dust or when is dust dust um and and i think it's a really good point um so i'll be convinced when when we can really when we can really generate an emulsion of stone fragments and at that point i will become a duster because basketing takes a long time it's really tedious um i would like to not use a safety wire i would like to be able to easily pass the scope up although i have to admit that the access sheath for me uh, is a visibility issue as well. I think it really, really improves your visibility. So dust or basket, I think I would still use an excess sheath. Um, but but I'm I'm optimistic with thulium, with a thulium fiber that, that you know, we'll be able to maybe really generate dust. Uh, and then that would sort of obviate the need to basket.
0: Yeah, and no, I appreciate it. Um... And and Olivier Traxer, for the audience, as you you may or may not know, he's uh, he's from France and has done a lot of great work in in lasers and ureteroscopy. Okay. uh, Peggy, you want to take over your next case?
1: Yeah. So, and I just want to thank Steve Nakata um, for inviting me to be part of his course again. I always learn from him. Um, you know, no matter how many years we've done one course or another, I, I always get great insight from you and I appreciate it.
0: Well, the honor's mine, believe me.
1: So um, I have no, uh, oops, sorry, I have no disclosures. So I'm going to start out with um, sort of everybody's worst nightmare, and that's that's a, um, a, a woman in pregnancy. So this patient's a 33-year-old G5P3AB1 who's at 25 weeks gestation. She's got a long history of recurrent kidney stones uh, and has undergone six ureteroscopic procedures in the past. So she presents uh, during her pregnancy with a one-day history of bilateral flank pain, right greater than left, right lower quadrant pain, and nausea and vomiting. She's afebrile afebrile on presentation. Her white count's mildly elevated at 15,000. She's got a normal creatinine, Her urinalysis is remarkable for 10 to 20 red blood cells, just a few white blood cells. It's nitrate negative and leukocyte esterate negative. So as is typically the case, a renal ultrasound is obtained, um, and that's usually the point at which we come in. So in this case, um, this patient was shown to have mild right hydronephrosis um, with a normal left kidney. So I think you probably all recognize that, you know, mild right hydronephrosis is not real helpful because this woman's at 25 weeks gestation and you can have physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy primarily on the right side. So always easier when the symptoms are on the left, um, but on the right, it, it becomes a little more, I think, of a diagnostic dilemma. So this patient was initially managed conservatively, obviously, in the hope that it would pass. So the question is should medical expulsive therapy be used and 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 the larger question of course is should we be using medical expulsive therapy altogether so Steve maybe I would just pose that to you are you using medical expulsive therapy in the general population and would you use it specifically in in pregnant women
0: Yeah well I think it's a it's a topic we we in in this stone world have talked about extensively and a lot has been written so certainly you know, if you put all the data together, a subtle case can be made if you have a moderate size, meaning four or five millimeter distal stone, you know, there is a putative benefit to being on medical expulsive therapy. So pretty much in the in the standard population, if you have a, a, a larger distal stone, uh, I will recommend routinely medical expulsive therapy and actually alter how I manage the patient. Otherwise, anywhere else in the ureter, you know, I, I would not use it if someone's on it. I wouldn't tell them to take it off, but I certainly wouldn't hold the boat, you know, with medical expulsive therapy if someone has a, a three millimeter you know, proximal stone or start one or, 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 or so on. So, so it's selective. Uh, and I think we use it less than we used to, but still, you know, the ER physicians have a lot of the power here and they will start it. Uh, in some, in, in many cases. And and if you take it, certainly I don't put you on it for much more than a couple of weeks. I think in pregnant women, certainly, you know, there is rationale and, and you know, I think things are a little more complicated in this case. So I think if, if there's even the slightest chance, I certainly would would take it. So uh, I would be comfortable uh, using medical explosive therapy in a case uh, of this nature. You know, I'll, for, for uh, transparency, we don't, Uh, do uh, OB at the University Hospital here at Wisconsin. We use a separate hospital for it. So I don't see pregnant women, uh, except when they have staghorn stones or something, you know, much more complicated. Uh, So, you know, I'm not put in this position too often, but I certainly would.
1: Okay, so... um... You know, I, I wasn't going to enter into a, a long discussion about medical expulsive therapy in the general population, but as you alluded to, it's 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 definitely a controversial topic, and it, it seems to have a lot of regional variation as well. I mean, there are a number of meta-analyses suggesting that there is some benefit to medical expulsive therapy, at least in larger, greater than five millimeter distal stones, as you mentioned, and much less evidence for stones in the middle and proximal ureter, partly because there's just less data on it, I think. Um, but but there are several large studies that did not show a benefit of medical expulsive therapy regardless of stone size or location. Um, but a large um, uh, Chinese study that did show that there was a benefit for larger stones. So controversial. And you know, I guess my feeling about the in the general population is, you know, it's a it's a uh, an inexpensive. And a uh, few side effect a few side effect profile, you know low side effect profile medication. Um, so I, I don't see a lot of harm in it. I give full disclosure to patients that it's controversial and there's not a lot of ev- that there's you know evidence for and against, but but certainly in the in the subpopulation of patients with larger distal stones, I think it's justifiable. But during pregnancy, there's obviously limited data, but there is a study from Bailey and colleagues where they looked at 27, symptomatic pregnant women who were treated with tamsulosin and matched them with pregnant women who were not on medical expulsive therapy and the mean duration of medical expulsive therapy um, varied from from one to 110 days that's a long time to be on medical expulsive therapy observing a stone Um, but but the mean duration was three days Um, in most cases um, this was during the third trimester about two-thirds of women were treated during their third trimester unfortunately most patients with stones present later in the pregnancy second third trimester and only 11 percent of patients in this series um, were exposed to medical expulsive therapy um, during the first trimester and they didn't find any difference between the two groups with regard to hospital admissions uh, during the remainder of their pregnancy but they did find um, about uh, uh, they, they did find an over 20 percent higher rate of stone expulsion of stone passage in the group on medical-expulsive therapy compared to the control group without an increased incidence of any of the complications of pregnancy, such as spontaneous abortion, intrauterine demise, or neonatal neonatal congenital anomalies. So in this case, um, they found that medical-expulsive therapy was not associated with adverse maternal or fetal outcomes, now small series, 27 Women during pregnancy, but tamoxifen is considered a Category B drug. In other words, there's no pr- proven human er, proven risk in humans, although studies are, are are very limited. So, there's at least some evidence that it may be reasonable during pregnancy um, uh, 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 to use. Um, whether or not it's efficacious in the larger sense, I think still remains to be seen. So, but despite this, uh, this patient was treated conservatively with medical expulsive therapy, hydration, and analgesia, but she continued to have symptoms. So would you do any further imaging at this point?
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're failing conservative measures safely uh, based on the presentation. So I, I, I think if you're now considering an intervention, you know, you need more information than just the ultrasound, right, which is all we have. So. Uh, I I would go ahead and get, you know, one of our low-dose, ultra-low-dose CTs here at this point.
1: So we agreed, and this patient underwent CT imaging, and you can see she does have a small stone in the left kidney, and she has some mild hydronephrosis on the right, and there's a stone about five millimeters or so in the distal aspect of the proximal ureter. And you can see the fetus in this imaging as well. So, um, you know, I would tend to agree with you as well that, you know, if you're considering intervention, you you probably want to know what you're dealing with. And ACOG, or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology Committee on Obstetric Practice, um, uh, issued a policy statement in 2017 that states that, with few exceptions, radiation exposure through radiography, computer tomography, nuclear or nuclear medicine imaging techniques, is it a low is at a dose much lower than the exposure associated with fetal harm. If these techniques are necessary, they should not be withheld from a pregnant patient. And they have pretty much echoed these same sentiments for for quite some time now um, on their, you know, various policy statements that have come out through the years that if it needs to be done and you need the imaging, you should do it. And they also will state that there's no reason to be considering um terminating a pregnancy uh you know in in a patient who's who's had ct or or other imaging during pregnancy so they they really um although i think nobody's cavalier about it they're i think they're making it clear that you need to do what you need to do to get the diagnostic accuracy um, that you need so in general, I think the goals of imaging are to identify hydronephrosis if it's due to a stone or some other pathology, and importantly, I think, to distinguish obstructive hydronephrosis from physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy, which becomes apparent somewhere around 20 weeks and is most common on the right, less common on the left. You want to be able to identify the stone, a stone if there is one, and ideally, you want to know the size of the stone and the location of the stone, because that's really going to um, impact your decision-making in terms of intervention. And of course, we want to avoid or minimize ionizing radiation, particularly during the first trimester when organogenesis is taking place, and we want to adhere to the ALARA principle, which is as low as reasonably achievable. So with that principle, it's really important that we um, use our imaging studies judiciously, and you want to select the imaging modality that has the highest diagnostic yield, but is associated with the least radiation exposure, and you have to kind of there's an interplay between those two, but you also have to be cognizant of the number of cu- the, the, the cumulative studies that you're exposing a patient to. So in other words, you know, doing a KUB and an IVP ultimately to end up with a CT scan maybe isn't the smartest choice. And maybe the CT scan, despite its its higher radiation exposure, um, it, it would be better off, uh, you know, earlier in that algorithm than later, because you only end up with more radiation. Um, ultrasound is, is obviously the recommended initial study because it does have no ionizing radiation associated with it, but the sensitivity is really highly variable, anywhere from 29 to 95%, but using a strict um, ultrasound imaging protocol, which includes looking for ureteral jets supposedly for 15 minutes or so, placing the patient um, either in the uh, lateral decubitus on one side or the other to try to um, uh, to, to make sure that it's not just the fetus that's compressing um, the ureter, you can have a sensitivity as high as 74%. I think the fact is that oftentimes there, we, we don't see a strict protocol followed. An expert protocol really should even include um, vaginal ultrasound because that can give you a pretty good look at the distal ureter. And I, we tend to have a little more trouble getting our radiologists to do vaginal ultrasounds as part of... Um, their imaging protocol, but it, it can be very helpful for distal stones, which are still the most common stones that we see. This is just an example of a patient with hydronephrosis bilaterally, um, right and left. And, and early in pregnancy, uh, you know, left hydronephrosis would be much less common than right. So when you have somebody with left flank pain and hydronephrosis, you really have to be suspicious of a stone because physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy would be less likely to occur, especially in the absence of right hydronephrosis. So White and colleagues uh, did a, a fairly nice study looking at the predictive value of imaging modalities, and they took 51 pregnant women with a suspected stone who ultimately underwent ureteroscopy. 22 of those women uh, underwent ultrasound imaging alone. 24 of them had an ultrasound as the first imaging and then a low-dose CT scan. And then five of them underwent ultrasound as the initial imaging, followed by an MR urogram. And they, uh, at the time of ureteroscopy, there was a 14% uh, incidence of negative findings. That is, ureteroscopy was performed and they didn't find a stone. So when they looked at the positive predictive value value of these three groups, it was highest in those undergoing low-dose CT in conjunction with ultrasound and lowest when ultrasound was used alone. So there was only a 4% negative ureteroscopy rate with low-dose CT. So low-dose CT offers a higher diagnostic accuracy, particularly when surgery is considered. And I think You know i'd feel pretty bad taking a pregnant woman to the operating room only to find out that she didn't have a stone so i i you had mentioned that earlier and i would agree if you're considering intervention i think you want to go into that intervention knowing that there is a stone number one the size of that stone number two and the location of that stone number three Um, i'd be a lot less likely to um, intervene surgically in someone who had you know maybe a a 15 or an 18 millimeter upj stone and more likely to either place a stent or place a nephrostomy tube than to embark on a on a lengthy ureteroscopy a potential infected stone Um, so i kind of want to know that going into it and that's just not information you're always going to get from an ultrasound Um, There's a nice algorithm that comes from McCullough at the Mayo Clinic where she recommends ultrasound as first-line imaging, I think we would all agree, and if it's conclusive and there's a stone there, then proceed with treatment. But if the ultrasound is inconclusive, she recommends that you just re image again in 24 hours, again, looking for ureteral jets because that's important. Uh, Transvaginal ultrasound, you know, to look for a distal ureteral stone if possible. And if that is conclusive, to treat the patient. But if it's not conclusive, that might, and the patient continues to be symptomatic, that may be the time to proceed with a low dose CT. Now, MRU, or or MR urography, is another um, increasingly, I think, um, uh, option that's being considered. Um, This is a study from Spencer and colleagues in which they took 24 um, pregnant women who had hydronephrosis on ultrasound and unremitting flank pain, I'm sorry, this was not in pregnancy, um, and evaluated them with an MRU without contrast, but heavily T2-weighted images. And 15 of the patients were determined to have physiologic hydronephrosis of, uh, physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy. It is pregnancy, sorry. Um, and that's, that's characterized by tapering dilation to the mid-ureter um, with extrinsic compression and a normal distal ureter. So if you see hydronephrosis all the way to the distal ureter, it's not likely to be hydronephrosis of pregnancy. That is more likely to be um, some pathologic stone or other um, problem seven of the patients had a filling defect that could be demonstrated on on MRU, um, or they had some renal edema and perinephric or periureteral fluid and the periureteral fluid is and perinephric fluid is much less common um, in physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy and then two patients had other anomalies um, the haste mru which is the half fournier single shot turbo spin echo MRU um, has been shown to have some nice um, ability to distinguish between physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy and pathologic hydronephrosis. And you can see with the image on the left, where there's a fornaceal rupture and you see all this fluid around the kidney, um, and and you see a filling defect, Representing a stone on the right sided image, that is not something you would typically see with hydr- physiologic hydronephrosis of pregnancy. So, Brian Matlaga's group looked at nine pregnant women with suspected renal colic who were at a mean of 23 weeks gestation and performed haste MRU after a renal ultrasound showed hydronephrosis. In four of the patients, they demonstrated physiologic hydronephrosis. Four patients were found to have ureteral calculi. One patient was indeterminate and one patient was treated with ureteroscopy. So, HASTE MRU may offer an alternative to CT in diagnosing ureteral calculi, um, obviating the need for ionizing radiation. And our radiologists often push us in that direction before obtaining a CT, and it may be helpful. But it's not always something that you can get in the middle of the night, or it's not always as readily as, as accessible as CT, and it's not always diagnostic. So there are a variety of management options available in the pregnant woman. First and foremost is conservative therapy, which we all hope will be successful, and that consists of of analgesia, hydration, and antibiotics, either with or without medical expulsive therapy. But active therapy is needed in about 15 to 30% of patients, and that can take the form of drainage with a stent or nephrostomy tube to relieve pain, obstruction, or infection, or it can involve definitive treatment of the stone. You have to remember if you're if you're putting a drainage tube in, you should be changing that tube out about every six weeks to avoid encrustation. And our radiologists were completely unaware of that. Our 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 interventional radiologists questioned us about that, had no idea that that patients calcified their their tubes uh, much quicker during pregnancy and we had to provide a lot of literature to them because they were balking at the changes. Um, so, but but that's that's not a, a you know a simple thing for patients have to go undergo some kind of an anesthetic every six weeks during pregnancy. Um, so definitive treatment of the stone is certainly an option. And Brian Matlaga's, um, you know really classic paper with Joe Simmons that was a systematic review of the literature on 108 reported cases of ureteroscopy in pregnancy in which. Uh, they compared uh, that group of patients to non-pregnant women taken from the EAUAUA ureteral stones guidelines and found that there was no difference in the overall complication rate between the two groups, whether it's in pregnant women or the general population, and no significant differences in the rates of ureteral injury or UTI between the two groups. So this really showed that ureteroscopy can be performed safely during pregnancy. And I just end this session with, you know, if you're going to perform ureteroscopy, you either want to try to use no fluoroscopy if possible, or you want to be prepared to use the minimum um, possible. But I think you have to be prepared to use some fluoroscopy because there's always the the, the chance that you get into trouble, or or you'll need uh, uh, radiation, some sort of fluoroscopy, either to place your stent. Um, obviously, this can be done under pure ultrasound guidance as well. But typically, um, I, we try to shield the fetus, and we do that by taking a lead apron, usually just a, a lead skirt, and we place it diagonally underneath the patient. So if you're using a C-arm, C-arm fluoroscopy, um, then the x-ray source is below the patient, so you want the lead apron to be under the patient. If you're on a, um, a radiology-type, um, uh, Uh, floor equipment where the uh, x-ray source is above, then you would have to place the lead apron on on top of the patient. But so if we're in the operating room, we place a lead apron diagonally underneath the patient, only exposing the ipsilateral kidney, because all we really care about is, are we getting our guide wire into the kidney and do we have a coil on the stent? We always use a low-dose mode and a pulsed fluoroscopy, so we can really, really dramatically reduce the amount of radiation exposure to usually just one second or so. Um, Pulse fluoroscopy can be as low as um, four, four pulses per second which is hard to watch that live because it's very slow, but it's very minimal radiation exposure. And then we collimate so that we're exposing only the kidneys. So we try to really minimize it. And then we start with a semi-rigid ureteroscope. We may or may not place a wire under direct vision, but we'll usually look up with a semi-rigid ureteroscope. It can help dilate the intramural ureter. You can pass a guide wire past the stone under direct vision, and we would pass a flexible ureteroscope over a wire, but under vision. So you can watch it with a digital ureteroscope that's easy um, with an analog it's easy as well and we use holmium YAG fragmentation uh, laser fragmentation because it has very minimal depth of penetration and we do place a stent in most cases and this is just an example of a fluoroscopic view from a case you can see the lead apron here it's diagonal I'm exposing only the left kidney the guide wires in place and we collimate the image so you can see that we've coned it down so that we're really only looking at a very limited image. All we really want um, to see is the kidney itself. So Steve, I think that's it. I don't know if you have any comments about treating stones during pregnancy. I know you said you don't see a lot of that because it's not at your hospital. Our county hospital um, does something like 15,000 deliveries a year. So we see a lot there and obviously fewer in our in our private hospital, but still I've had a run of them for some reason during this whole COVID situation. Um, I've seen four or five alone and treated two. Any comments?
0: Yeah, well, thank you for a really thorough, great presentation. I'm looking to see if there are audience questions. Uh, I don't see any at the moment. Uh, what I would say, you know, first off is, is, I think the the traditional or historic approach, you know, that you place in nephrostomy and wait for delivery, you know, is just inadequate in 2020. I think uh, it makes a lot of sense to use imaging. And while you know, I'm impressed with some of the early or some of the MRU data. I mean, still, frankly, you know, your low-dose CT gets you pretty quickly to where you, you're you in a safe position to operate. And then as, as we know, the operation is relatively safe, particularly for ureteral stones, u- utilizing, you know, standard equipment. So most people have a Holmium laser and, and access to low-dose CT. My only question is, you know, on that one algorithm you showed, would you really do two ultrasounds before you did a CT, knowing that if you don't have a stone in, a, in, a, you know, in, the, in the basket, if you will, or uh, if the patient hasn't passed anything and you know the stone's there, would you really need to repeat another ultrasound? I would potentially either just go or just get the CT, you know, for surgical planning as well. What, what are your thoughts?
1: No, I I would agree with you. I mean, maybe that would be um, relevant in someone who wasn't having symptoms anymore, um, which, you know, as we all know, doesn't mean a stone has passed. So maybe that would be good for just confirming either the absence of hydronephrosis or at least confirming um, that a ureteral jet is present in the presence of hydronephrosis, and then you'd feel a lot more confident just, you know, continuing to, to manage the patient expectantly. Um, but but you're right. For a symptomatic patient, maybe that you know the second ultrasound is you know again sort of a waste of imaging and uh, and cost um, when you're still going to need to definitively make a diagnosis and proceed with treatment.
0: Yeah, I mean I think like that today, you know most of what we do can be managed and diagnosed using axial imaging, and it it's a still a relatively ubiquitous technology, and and the price just needs to be altered. The reality is, ultrasound is varying degrees of quality, and, and in the end, you're going to measure your stone-free rate by CT, and, and you and I both know that number is low, no matter how good you are. Which I think makes the case for really managing your, you know, residual fragments. But but either way, I think CT is is at least the current best treat, you know, imaging modality, and, and you know, even in the extreme case of pregnancy, we would probably both recommend it in, in most cases. why don't we move on I'll take mouse control back and um, try to get through two more cases uh, before we're all said and done Uh, here's a 37 year old woman looks pretty similar uh, to the first case so we're trying we try to pick cases that don't appear that complicated And we either make them complicated we've been good at that or or they're actually complicated so here's a person with flank pain Uh, we elected to go with ureteroscopy here. Uh, So I'll just start to save time. And we went in. And then uh, this is our our retrograde injection of contrast. And you can see that this is a little bit uh, atypical appearing uh, after contrast. Uh, And now uh, we're concerned that there's a small diverticulum. And here's some video from the case. So we can show our first video bit. And we have an opening, and you can see a what appears to be a basket of gold bullion, uh, but I assure you it wasn't golden. But actually, I'm using a grasper there. You can see we're not great at it, since we don't do it as much as Peggy. And we removed uh, each one of these uh, stones individually to develop a uh, stone-free state, and then we made a subsequent incision uh, thereafter. So this ends up being a uh, stone uh, small stones in a kill cell that reticulum um so peggy uh, how would you have managed this uh first and then second knowing that these are calcium oxalate you know mono and dihydrate stones how would you handle the medical management of this patient
1: so i i think i would have um done as you did um which was to treat the patient ureteroscopically and i think you're right i mean you know there there is a tendency sometimes to treat patients based on on, on kub's and i think with shockwave lithotripsy that can really be a disaster less so i think with ureteroscopy because you'll 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 identify the anatomy when you get there but but if doing this treating this patient with shockwave lithotripsy would You know, would be a mistake, and so I I think you're you can get into more trouble with shockwave lithotripsy. Um, You get a hint of it on CT generally if there's parenchymal loss overlying it, and and if there's um, and if the stone is very peripheral. But in this case, if you looked up and saw it, I mean, I would do as you did. I mean, I tend to make the incision first. I mean, in this case, you were able to get in there, I guess, without too much of an incision. And maybe with a big enough incision, the you know you could get these things to just sort of irrigate out of there. But I'm impressed that you pulled all these little tiny little beads out of there ureteroscopically. That's pretty good. Um, uh, but we do the same. I I don't make an attempt to fulgurate the diverticular wall in a case like this. Um, I I do it percutaneously, but I, I don't do it ureteroscopically. I think that's so tedious. To take a laser or a two French bugby electrode to try to fulgrate the wall. So I generally will just incise the diverticulum, um, shallow radial incisions, multiple. And sometimes I'll put a, a balloon up, I'll put a wire into the diverticulum and then put a balloon up over it and dilate it to try to make that opening, you know, circumferentially larger um and then if i can if the diverticulum is large enough i try to place the stent into it with the proximal coil sometimes that's not possible um it can be tricky to get the proximal coil in there but if it's big enough you can and maybe that helps um uh, the likelihood that the that the infundibular neck will stay open um but i otherwise i i totally would uh, agree with your technique and in terms about
0: of um, management. yeah. yeah what Young so person, think, 37, so.
1: Yeah, so I think that's a little bit controversial. I mean, there are definitely, there's definitely some data suggesting that patients who have diverticular stones, you know, also have the same sort of spectrum and, and severity of metabolic abnormalities as those with calocele stones. Um, but there was also some data from, I think it was Brian Matlog and Jim Lingeman, that, that determined that that there is some element of stasis Looking at the actual urine from in the diverticulum and showing that it is um, that it's supersaturated, uh, and that uh, so there maybe maybe stasis really is a component of it, and in that case, then metabolic eva- evaluation may not be useful. Um, I think just as a general rule of thumb, my feeling is if they have isolated diverticular stones and don't don't have any history of or current evidence of stones anywhere else in the collecting system i generally don't evaluate them metabolically but if they have stones elsewhere and many many patients do then i would i would uh, subject them to a metabolic evaluation
0: yeah i mean i'm with you on that we tend not to to initially up front go for a metabolic evaluation unless there's compelling family history uh, really otherwise you know, the stasis argument made both by Jim but better by Steve Stream, uh, the late Steve Stream on that topic, uh, supports, you know, either, either approach. Well, let's let's up the ante and make it a little more complicated. So uh, this is now a 60-year-old man with renal cystic disease and uh, right-sided uh, pain, and here's the urography so this is a uh, obviously multiple cysts coronal image from a non-contrast CT and you can see there are stones uh, right here Uh, and uh, you can see that these have uh, these appear to be multiple small uh, fragments and here is a sagittal image showing really how tight it is so we elected to to give it a go ureteroscopically. So here's our interoperative fluoro. And you can see the fragments here. Uh, This is what the collecting system looks like uh, in light of the surrounding uh, cysts. We were able to actually get a wire across a very tight uh, infundibular narrowed space, uh, but really could not dilate across this uh, with a balloon or with incision fairly significant distance here. uh, And we elected at this point not to do more ureteroscopically uh, with this case. And now knowing uh, that it's really not a good retrograde approach, what would you offer this man?
1: So I tend to approach these patients um, as, uh, you know, I like to leave open my options. To, you know, to approach it both ureteroscopically or percutaneously or both. So I generally treat these patients prone um, so that if I can't access it ureteroscopically, I can access it percutaneously. And in fact, sometimes even if I can't access it ureteroscopically, I like to put a nephrostomy tube through it into the collecting system to leave that afterwards if I can't get a stent into the diverticulum. So, I like having the ability to, to, to access it percutaneously. So, in this case, then, I might have proceeded with percutaneous access. You were able to get contrast into that diverticulum. Um, so, that, that would probably be the way to go. Now, this case in particular would be difficult percutaneously because of all the cysts and if you know typically we put a needle in and if you're doing it fluoroscopically and you are aspirating and trying to aspirate fluid and if you get into a cyst and aspirate cyst fluid um you're going to be misled that you're in the diverticulum furthermore if you then put contrast into that to confirm that you're in the diverticulum and you're in a cyst it's kind of game over because the a pacified cyst will now obscure your view of anything and that that contrast doesn't go away in the cyst it doesn't dissipate so it, it's tri percutaneous approach would be a bit tricky in this um, for exactly that reason the fact that you could have pacify it is helpful and would make it easier to to approach it percutaneously so i would i would probably proceed with after ureteroscopic attempt to go percutaneously and you're right when you look at those images and you see that cluster of small stones like first thought is this is a diverticulum you just don't see that in the collecting system that all those little stones have no reason to sit there
0: yeah so um so in review first off do they all need treatment you know if they're asymptomatic certainly observations an option you know the retrograde and percutaneous approach are both good options you know i'm willing to say the percutaneous approach is one of the harder percutaneous cases out there to get it right because you're in a small cavity uh the, you know, robotics, I showed it to our robotics people, and and while they felt this was doable, it, you know, it, it's a complicated case, no doubt. And I think the long-term outcomes on these really are better percutaneously than they are ureteroscopically, particularly when the stone's greater than a sonometer. And we discussed that, I think, medical management, at least today, when it comes to stones and calosylt diverticula, you know, that's dealer's choice. So So either way, You know, I think the retrograde approach, it's nice when it works, but uh, once it gets more complicated, you know, the the anti does go up substantively. Uh, Do we have any questions about kale cell tick before we move on to our uh, next case? I'm I'm not not seeing
1: any. any questions.
0: All right, well, I'll give you back mouse control and we can go on.
1: Okay. So, sorry, so this this is a 44-year-old woman who has a long history of recurrent stones. She underwent a recent MRI for back pain and that demonstrated left hydronephrosis. She's undergone multiple courses of shockwave lithotripsy and ureteroscopy in the past, the last of which was in 2008. Currently, she has a normal creatinine and a negative urine culture, so a CT scan was obtained. And as you can see, she's got hydronephrosis on the left. She's got some thin parenchyma and we're continuing to see what the source of the hydronephrosis is there's a small stone in the right kidney there's no hydronephrosis on the right you have some stones that look like they're layering out in the lower pole of the kidney you wonder if that isn't a remnant from shockwave lithotripsy past and she's got um at the level of sort of the distal aspect of the proximal ureter she's got this stone and on the coronal images, you can see the stone layering out in the lower pole of the kidney, and you see this obstructing stone um, in the proximal ureter. And that stone measures 9.5 by 7.4 millimeters. So, there are a number of options. So, you could say this kidney doesn't look good, it's got thin parenchyma, should we place a nephrostomy tube for a couple weeks and then reassess uh, with a renal scan and see, see what the function is? You could just proceed with ureteroscopy and laser lithotripsy. You could consider PCNL and antegrade ureteroscopy and laser lithotripsy, particularly given those stones layering out in the lower pole of the kidney. Steve, how would you manage this?
0: Yeah, well, I, I would take number one. We could I could opt for all all of it on that slide for this patient, uh, and and sort of after you know my tour de force on how we should scan everybody. You know, we have a scan here where we don't have all the information, right? Because we really don't know how good that kidney is. Uh, but we know there's some parenchyma there. And this is a large stone. I'm impressed that it's not quite a centimeter. Uh, you know, it appears uh, larger than that. So, th- so this is a tough scenario. You know, that being said, I-, I think as a first step, usually, again, with modern day technology, you can, you can access this from below. And, and I'd make the case you could even potentially just pass the ureteroscope up to this thing and begin to develop a plane to place your wire if you can't get the guide wire up initially. Uh, I recall a very difficult case, much like this, uh, where the stone was totally impacted and we actually drilled the hole right through the center of the stone and then placed a safety wire, and then completed the procedure uh, with a safety wire, uh, and mostly because I wanted to see what the efflux of urine was going to be once we actually got drainage. And if it was purulent, then we would head towards the stem. Uh, But, you know, to be truthful, sure, you know, I think all three are reasonable uh, options, but we'd probably just try it from below uh, because I think we're comfortable doing that for the patient. That'd be the easiest
1: thing. And I think those are really well-taken points. I mean, you don't know what's proximal in that kidney. You don't know what that urine looks like. Um, You know, just by the fact that the stone is detected um, incidentally on a CT with hydronephrosis and parenchymal loss tells you this is a long-standing problem and almost certainly an impacted stone um so you know it's not going to be simple uh, i think we would probably all agree with that but 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 i would agree with you i think ureteroscopy is probably a reasonable way to go if the kidney doesn't function and you're looking at at taking the kidney out then you're going to have to take that ureter down to that stone so that becomes not you know the easiest thing in the world too so you could argue give give the patient a chance and and proceed with ureteroscopy so we did that. We elected to undergo ureter to treat it ureteroscopically. And at the time of the procedure, as you predicted, the guide wire wasn't able to be passed. You can see on the image on the left, the guide is coiled underneath it. And we tried all kinds of um uh you know ways of 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 manipulating a guide wire past the stone, including, you know, angled hydrophilic wires. Um uh, in order to try to, to get something past it. So using an angled glide wire with a straight angiographic catheter would be our first choice. I would start with that because I know this isn't a standard guide wire, isn't going to pass this stone. Um, and that allows you for sort of an infinite number of possibilities, uh, you know, just in terms of of manipulating the wire itself. But even better if you use a compy catheter, which is an angled um, uh, angiographic catheter with a preformed tip, and that allows you even more possibilities to, to negotiate past an impacted stone or, or a tortuous ureter. So, these would be my go to tools to try to get a guide wire past. But as you said, you know, it, it may be best to, even at that point to just go up without it. So, you could at this point just terminate the procedure and place an aphrostomy tube, or you could reposition the patient prone and proceed with PCNL. Or, as you suggested, pass the ureteroscope up without a guide wire and place the guide wire under direct vision either before or after partial fragmentation of the stone. So I'll just proceed since you mentioned that this is what the stone looked like. And you can see it's the mucosa is practically or the stone is practically growing into the into the wall. And it would be no surprise that you couldn't readily uh, get a guide wire past that without at least direct no vision. No
0: Pardon safety. Me? <laughs> no safety wire. No
1: safety wire yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> so in this case, under direct vision, after partial fragmentation of the stone, we were able to pass a guide wire beyond the stone. So we we removed our ureteroscope, leaving the guide wire in place. And then um and then we were able to put a second guide wire just up to the stone. And at that, in that case, we could place an access sheath, which we did. Then we further fragmented the stone and extracted the pieces. We were able to proceed into the lower pole of the kidney and remove all those fragments um, manually, extracted them. So I think it's really important, and this is really just illustrating, you know, kind of your options in a patient with an impacted stone. You need to maintain a variety of guide wires and angiographic catheters with preformed tips to try to negotiate a a tortuous ureter and impacted stone. But you can always consider um, uh, just directly passing a guide wire uh, under, under direct vision. Um, and partially fragmenting the stone prior to passage of the guide wire, but I do like to try to get a guide wire, especially in this case, because there is definitely the potential for injuring the ureter. So I think at the at the soonest point that you can get a guide wire into the kidney, um, you should do so. Um, but whether or not you know, I, I I don't try that hard to get a guide wire past the stone without, as you said, just looking up there and trying to do it under direct vision.
0: Yeah, you know, Rob Rob Moore. Uh... A number of years ago, wrote a, a very nice article with histopathologic confirmation of the fact that if you have stones impacted in the ureter, that you know down the road you're at future risk for ureteral stricture disease, and you know these are the types of cases that lead to it. This is obviously a little more end stage than what you know was possibly in that paper or that you or I might see, but but my point is I and this is just opinion. Uh, you know, spending 45 minutes passing wire after wire can potentially damage the ureter more than going up endoscopically with the newer technology that we have, or the great technology, you know, you have digital imaging, uh, and, you know, carefully, surgically, if you will, you know, getting rid of the stone and minimizing damage to the ureteral wall. Uh, I think one of the concerns I have, and, and you you have this every you see these patients probably five, six times a year where someone has, you know, damaged their ureter irreparably from a difficult procedure. And, you know, now they, you know, the ureteral reconstruction, if you will, is a significant uh, procedure so that a little less might be more. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. but.
1: Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, these are know that they're they have a high potential i mean even under the best of circumstances the the ureteral stricture rate in these patients is high um reportedly as high as 25 percent so they're under the best of circumstances these patients you know can have a poor outcome um steve i'm going to just stop because we have like two minutes left but there are a couple questions that have been raised here and maybe we could just get to them so one was Yeah, do you try to limit ureteroscopy to second trimester? This came from Tim Sang in California. Um, Yes, I I personally do. I mean, I try to get patients out of that. that, I mean, I have done first trimester ureteroscopy, but I prefer not to. If I do it during first trimester, I use absolutely zero fluoroscopy. I mean, I try to use zero under any circumstances, but um, I have done it only because I've had to. In fact, I just did one um but uh yes i if i can get the patient out of the first trimester i try to organogenesis is going to go up to about 15 weeks or so i think so i try to get past there if i can um another one was um patient 25 weeks pregnant with a distal ureteral stone i did ureteroscopy with a stent do you agree i mean i personally do place a stent in those patients i mean the last thing i want is them to have pain you know, post-operatively after I've just taken them to the operating room and I usually can get it out pretty quickly. Um, so I, I, I tend to do that, I guess I, you know, I, I'm sort of a stenter anyway, I'm not one who does a whole lot of stentless ureteroscopy, Steve, comment from you? Yeah, uh,
0: generally we use stents, I showed our own data, it's like 80%. The only thing I've moved towards is we use a dangler on almost everybody now and we didn't before and uh, i didn't because of basically fear of people pulling out the stent early accidentally and then covid 19 hit and we wanted to really minimize you know visits so we've switched to strings and we've had a couple instances where people had pain because of early removal but all in all uh, it's a benefit do you use danglers you no,
1: know, I really don't. Only if somebody asks, and and I'll, because my own personal experience, I had one stent with a dangler, one without, and the dangler was really irritating. Um, I, I, I the cysto was nothing, and the dangler was irritating. It just pulls, so it's like irritates your bladder neck. So I I didn't like it. So I tend not to. But 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 patients will some patients will ask because they know. Um, there's another question. Do you prefer to do or do you pre-treat patients with Tamsulosin prior to using a sheet? There is some data, um, very some retrospective data su- suggesting that, that 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 you may have a better ability to pass an excess sheet with Tamsulosin. You know, most patients with ureteral stones anyway often are coming in on Tamsulosin. So by default, some of those patients are on it. I have not specifically deliberately placed patients on Tamsulosin in anticipation of ureteroscopy. Have you, Steve?
0: Well, we rarely use a sheath, so we certainly, and we don't use that much Tamsulosin, so we certainly wouldn't give it a week prior uh, on the 7% chance that you'd get a sheath from me, so.
1: Okay. Um, What tips do you have for the partial fragmentation step? I think this must be, this is from Christina um, uh, Garrels, this must be during the impacted stone, I'm assuming? Um, It's tricky and you have to be really careful and slow um, because oftentimes there's a lot of tortuosity distal to an impacted stone. And so sometimes it's hard to even get there, but once you're there, it can be really tricky to actually get the laser onto the stone. And I, you know, there are times I'm just, I'm rotating my scope 360 degrees trying to find some place where I can sneak the laser fiber onto it that I'm not where I'm not on the wall. So it's slow and painful and I'm I'm rotating my scope all in all kinds of directions, um, trying to find a safe place. And I just go slowly and system- systematically till I I I I can develop a window to get a wire passed. Steve, any tips?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if she's asking about just partial fragmentation for basketing as opposed to in the impacted stone case. But in the impacted stone case, our my approach is to go at the center of the stone if you can, always, because that you know that's safe. And then eventually, you know, this was uh, Demetrius Bagley's old concept that you you sort of hollow out the center and then it, it falls in. Now, in a perfect world, you, you you have that, but I, as you know, that the case can be quite complicated and you don't have that edge. And then what I would do is I would work on the edge of the stone just to get a an opening. And then I'd, I'd send the wire up and then go back with a safety now. And now you have a lot more control and you, you have an option of placing a stand if you get in trouble. So here I would, you know, I think the number one goal when you're doing that approach is to just get in the wire. You're not trying to get stone free. You're just trying to get the wire in. So I don't know if that helps. But.
1: And then one last question because our time is up. But this the the question is this is from uh, Gabriel Fiscus, How long would you leave a stent in postoperatively with this patient? I'm assuming this is the impacted stone patient. Um, typically in that scenario, I leave it in two weeks. I I don't know that there's any great data on that, but I just figure longer than usual. Steve.
0: Yeah. Well, you want to get a renal scan eventually, right? And 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 how did you manage the the lower pole stone? If, did you I go
1: after I would go up ureteroscopically and extract all those pieces? Okay,
0: so so really in theory you're done with this patient. So I'd probably get your renal scan right to see uh, if there's function and but but I I would think for an impacted stone of this nature I just use two weeks and then in a routine case if I leave a stent it's like three or four days uh, and and the challenge is with the dangler it gets shorter because now the patient's in control and they'll just take it out. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's a consideration because, um, you know, with all that's going on, the, the if you can avoid a procedure and a potential exposure to a hospital setting, you know, you might want to consider it. That's my take on it.
1: Well, I all do right. think time is up.
0: Uh, so I guess I'd, I'd like to hand it back to the AUA and just uh, graciously thank the AUA for the opportunity, uh, for all of you to stay on the call till the end, which is, or the webinar till the end, which is terrific. And of course, oh, my...
1: you know what, Steve, we actually have a few more minutes.
0: Oh, okay.
1: We have till 10 30 oh, Eastern time. So I, and actually there's one more question. So okay. that question is comments on type. This is from Oscar for the comments on the type of lithotripsy and pregnancy. So I'm typically using a holmium laser, so um, that that's what I'm using. I don't see a reason that thulium fiber wouldn't be completely feasible to use during pregnancy as well. Steve, any comments? Or or uh, maybe, maybe that's not what you mean, um, the type yeah. of lithotripsy.
0: Yeah, well, Oscar is an expert himself, so great for him to ask a question. Oh. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I like what you do. I, I think you know, as we know, the holmium is thermal. It's it's relatively safe, so that's probably what I, I would use. I, I'd also make the case um, that if I were doing a, a case where the stone was smaller, this might be an instance where I'd go to extract the stone, so that I don't have to use energy, you know, to to treat the patient. You know, and and I do think our tendency today is if there's a even a, a five millimeter distal stone and we're in there, we'll just laser it because it's the safest, quickest thing to do. Uh, but maybe in a pregnant woman, if it's sitting there, I might try to use a grasper to remove the stone uh, so that I don't have to fire up any lithotripsy uh, device. And and I think a lot of times uh, you might have smaller stones, but that's my uh, my take on it.
1: All right, any that's... questions
0: on your on your end there?
1: Oh, uh, here, I, there's another question here. This is coming from Joshua um, Sesek. This says, um, the preferred settings for dusting. I've frequently encountered stones that tend to fragment requiring basket extraction, even on lower and slower settings. So what do you, Steve, you, you're- you We use 20 uh, and point 0.2, typically. Uh,
0: you know, 20 and point 0.2 for dusting and I keep point 0.8. So we have a device where we can keep like four settings. So we use 20 and point 0.2, point 0.8 and 8. Ten and one, and admittedly, you know, we'll we'll sort of go back and forth depending. I think uh, what comes out, you know, in our cases is, is, you know, these stones are in multiple layers, so you're going to have, you know, a different effect depending on what part of the stone you're on. So uh, I'm typically altering uh, our settings as as we go. Um, I have tried the thulium. I don't know if you have, Peggy. Have you tried it? I have. So, what are your thoughts on that
1: i know. really liked it i really liked it i mean it it fragments really efficiently um and, and you know we we don't own it and we had it for i don't know six or eight weeks and i i miss it a lot um it, i thought it was very effective um and and again it's you know it's the, the time that i might consider dusting is with the tholium fiber because it's i mean it's it's very efficient um and even with the harder stones it tends to do better in fact there's a uh, you know I, I i think that with that previous question about um you know that there's some uh stones that you encounter that just tend to fragment rather than dust and i think that's true i mean there are stones that are just very much amenable to dusting and those that are very much amenable to fragmenting calcium oxalate monohydrate doesn't dust very well um, but I think with a thulium fiber, you've come closer to being able to make that actually happen um, than you do with holmium, and, and I'm not an expert on all of the manipulation of the holmium settings because I, I don't dust. Um, but you know, you do it. You could talk, maybe talk a little bit about pulse width because I think that's important.
0: Yeah, you know, we uh, I'll start with the thulium. We, we trialed it and um, I got, you know, there's a fair bit of fiber burn back as you probably experienced when you were doing it. Uh, and I felt, you know, and it's, it sort of has a different look, right? It's almost like it's a little fire going on there as you're, as you're breaking up the stones. So admittedly, it's something I'm not used to. And we did oh, maybe about 12 cases with it. And so did I see a huge difference? No. Uh, do I think it's uh potentially as good and potentially as good and potentially better? Sure. I mean it, it's a little early to tell. Uh and, and certainly if in your if you're in the market for a new laser, I could see going either way. You know, to be truthful, you know, we also do hole up at, at our place. So the real question is, you know, we need uh lasers where you could do both, uh a hole up and uh for stone. So you know, the real question is what are the, our holop surgeons think about the thulium? And I have not talked to them yet. And, and that's the, the honest truth, because uh, the, the device just left uh, UW like a week ago. So I don't know, we did a few cases uh, of prostate. Um, so I, I think certainly what I saw about the thulium is it's smaller, the footprint, and it's quiet compared to, you know, a large homium device. You know, it was with pulse width, we did a study with J.R. Bell looking at various pulse, pulse widths and, and found, you know, effectively, you know, you, using a longer pulse width was better for retropulsion, but there was no difference in terms of uh, actual efficacy, in terms of fragmentation time. So we typically just sit in long rather than in short or, or altering it and uh we do use now moses um and do i notice a difference hard to tell but but certainly you know i think the technology and i think this is where you and i being more uh experienced or older or whatever term you want to use probably you'd want to use experienced uh uh, what we're using today is just so much better than what we used to use and um i think You know, the real answer here is probably, you know, some hybrid technique. And I think uh, I recall someone on a similar webinar said, you know, really, we tend to go hybrid on on an approach and, and sure, if you're on an oxalate stone where the fragments are pretty large, you're going to have to basket extract, you know, I agree. You know, even we would do that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we'll dust if we possibly can. And I think being facile at both is, is probably, you know, in the end, important. And, and in, in your case, Peggy, it's not being facile with both. It's more being comfortable with dusting. But, but either way, I think the equation's the same. And, and the short, the long answer, right, the ultimate answer, I think, for all of our patients is that stones are a chronic disease. And what we really need to assess is the recurrence data. And if the recurrence or need for repeat procedures, but the one thing we study is different, substantially different uh, between basket extraction, let's say hybrid or dusting, then that could lead you to a different approach. Uh, and we still haven't seen that data in, in, in the pure form. I know some people are looking at it. And I think, ultimately, that's the best question. And, and also, it speaks to the medical management. Over the years, I've moved more towards metabolic management, not so much uh, you know, because it, it seemed like the important thing to do, but more to, to really address the, the limitations of our surgical approach.
1: Steve, there are two other questions. So John Abraham asked the role of lithoclast in an impacted stone. Isn't it safer than laser? And and yes, I think to some degrees it is safer. the problem is you just uh, often don't have the ability, for instance, outside of the distal ureter, you know, to be using a lithoclast with a flex. I mean, you're often in there with a flexible scope, and you're, you know, it's all you can do to flex it enough to get that fiber where it needs to go. So in the distal ureter. That's probably a very reasonable thing to do, but I think for the stones that are and and that's distal ureter is just rarely the problem. It's it's rarely the it's usually the more proximal stones that are problematic that have all the tortuosity associated with the 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 ureter distal to the stone. Um, but yeah, it'd be good to use when you can. Um, just don't have a lot of opportunities for it.
0: Yeah, I like the lithoclast or or a, a pneumatic impactor for bladder stones, one, not, you know, even compared to the laser at times. And and certainly there used to be a device called the brown pneumatic that you could pass through a ureteroscope. Uh, but I think you're right, it's just a practical matter. And the laser, you know, at low setting and low power is pretty safe. So I would tend to use that. Um, but, you know, you can make a good case. If you can get the pneumatic there, it's a good, good way to go.
1: And then in the one minute we have one last question from Robert King. Do either of you see a role for implementing the available scoring systems to assess degree of impaction prior to deciding retrograde versus antegrade approach to larger ureteral stones you suspect may be impacted? Um, personally, I probably don't. So I, you know, maybe it's more gestalt I would say than it is anything for, else for me. Um, but I, I often will leave open the option of both. So I, I will so often schedule those patients as ureteroscopy possible perk so that if I can't deal with it ureteroscopically, I'm prepared to go percutaneously. I don't always do it prone. Um, in a woman, I might, in a man, I probably wouldn't. Um, uh, but I, I, I think overall, I'm just, if it's, if it's proximal or UPJ, I'm probably more inclined to go percutaneously if it's, you know, a little more inferior than the UPJ, I'd probably go ureteroscopically. Steve?
0: Yeah, no, uh, I concur. The only variable might be is if an nephrostomy tube's already in, you know, and, and then you might, you can get more data. You could do a good anti-grade and see where you actually stand to and, and make a decision one way or another. But I agree.
1: All right. I think that wraps up the questions.
0: All right. Well, again, want to kick it back to AUA and... Uh, Uh, Peggy always uh, an honor to be with you and um, uh, a lot of fun so uh, and appreciate the audience's engagement and uh, we hope to see you all soon